This is Jeff Young, the Catholic Foodie at CatholicFoodie.com, and you're listening to episode 114 of the Catholic Foodie, Mercy Sakes Alive. Welcome, folks, to the Catholic Foodie, where food meets faith. I'm your host, Jeff Young, and today is Divine Mercy Sunday. Thank you, Lord. It's also the day that Pope John Paul II is beatified. He is now blessed JP2. Praise God for that, too. Awesome. We have lots of feedback for you today. We're also going to talk about crawfish, devotion to Jesus and the Divine Mercy, and also the wedding feast at Cana and more. And uh, maybe even a date. I mean, well, I don't know if I'll get into that. But anyway, lots of good stuff. Sarah Reinhardt joins us again today with Mary in the Kitchen. All this and more right here at the Catholic Foodie, where food meets faith. As we start this episode, I want to thank our sponsor, DivineOffice.org. You know, you will find all things Liturgy of the Hours at DivineOffice.org. Of course, the Liturgy of the Hours is the official prayer of the Church, and it is prayed several times a day by priests, religious, and laity around the world. It is a treasure trove of grace and a rich education in prayer. If you have never prayed the Liturgy of the Hours, I encourage you to give it a try and DivineOffice.org makes it very easy to do so. You will find the hours available there in text format and also in audio. You can subscribe to the podcast version or download the iPhone or iPad app. There's even an app for your iMac or MacBook. But the most important thing you will find at DivineOffice.org is a living community of prayer. So come join us in prayer at DivineOffice.org. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef, an apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real, if it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh Uh-huh. I'll have what she's having. Hi, hi, Jeff. This is Kim from West Virginia, and I just uh, tried the pretzel recipe, and I know I'm a couple uh, uh, podcasts behind. Um, there are the results are on my Tumblr site, which is mumblesandtumbles.com. Um, I really enjoyed the recipe. Um, I probably could have used a little more patience, but. Um, sort of like the person who goes, uh, please, God, give me patience and uh, give it to me now. And um, I really like your podcast. And um, that's all I really had to say. And thank you, and God bless, and have a good day. Well, thank you so much, Kim. I really appreciate that. Uh, great feedback. And uh, the picture's awesome, too. I went on the site. The the, the address is mumbleandtumble.tumblr.com. It's over there on Tumblr, mumbleandtumble.tumblr.com. And a picture of the pretzels that she did, which look a lot better than the ones that we did. <laughs> They're great. Looks awesome. And, of course, folks, she's referring to the uh, pretzels. We talked about uh, pretzels during Lent. You know, it's a, it's a great Catholic tradition of having pretzels during Lent and uh, using them also on Fridays, if Friday's a day of abstinence, uh, or even on uh, Ash Wednesday or Good Friday when you're fasting. You can, you can eat pretzels. So uh, recipe is also there over at catholicfoodie.com, but... Uh, if you want to check out Kim's picture, it's mumbleandtumble.tumblr.com. Got uh, some more feedback for you. I uh, got a Facebook message from Lisa Jones. 
Lisa is one of the uh, blogging sisters over there at uh, of Sound Mind and Spirit, which is at soundmindandspirit.blogspot.com. And uh, Lisa's husband fasted, or I guess that's the word, fasted, or abstained from meat all of Lent. And you, you may remember, if you've been listening for a while, at the beginning of Lent, she called in and told us that that's what he was doing. And uh, wow, I've got some feedback from her. Let me, let me get that for you right now. Over on the Facebook page, the Catholic Foodie Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash catholicfoodie, Lisa wrote this. She says, Jeff, thanks for the advice on our Easter meat-filled meal in episode 112, Po' Boys and Penance. We ended up having omelets for breakfast with a side of bacon and steaks for our family Easter lunch. He really enjoyed every bite. Thank you for your suggestions. I hope your Easter season is blessed. So uh, again, I'm impressed. I'm very much impressed that that uh, Lisa's husband gave up meat for all of Lent. It's fantastic, and uh, I admire that. That is uh, that's really really awesome. So happy Easter to y'all, and thank you for the feedback. I also received an email from an old friend, uh, Mike Lindner. Mike sent an, uh, an article into me about uh, some chefs. Uh, this article was in the L.A. Times, and it's available online. I'm going to put a link in the show notes, but basically it's an, uh, an article about, the title of it is Great Chefs Share Tricks of the Trade. And I always love reading this kind of stuff. I love knowing kind of the inside scoop on how chefs do what they do when they work their magic in the kitchen. You know what I'm saying? So it's always, uh, it's always a thrill for me to read that. And uh, great stuff. You got uh, Thomas Keller sharing some insights there uh, from the kitchen, and just uh, really, really good stuff. So I'm going to put the link here in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com for this particular episode, episode 114, so you could take a look at it over there. And Mike, thank you so much for passing it on to me. I really appreciate that. And if you would like to leave feedback for the Catholic Foodie, please call uh, the voice feedback line. We have a a feedback line. It's just a, a place where you can call in and leave a message just like Kim did, you heard earlier, and uh, we can play that on the show. It just records it in a digital format, makes it easy for me to uh, share that with you on the show. And you can call that number. It's 985-635-4974, 985-635-4974. That is the voice feedback line. You can call in feedback that way, and I love getting voice feedback. It's always fun to hear your voice and to play Whatever, whatever, whatever it is you call in on this show, I really enjoy doing that. So, of course, you're always free to send me an email. You can do that by emailing me at jeff at catholicfoodie.com. And again, don't forget to like, you know, like, like, you know, like, like <laughs> the Catholic Foodie on Facebook at facebook.com slash catholicfoodie. You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for nice MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes ripe. They're so perky. I love that. Well, folks, today is Divine Mercy Sunday. What a glorious celebration, a glorious feast. And I don't know about you, but I'm very excited about the mercy of God. I guess that's because I need it so much. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, there really is so much that could be said about divine mercy, but what I want to focus on here today with you is the fact that devotion, this devotion, 
that has positively impacted, indeed it has blessed, incredibly blessed, the entire church is just that, a devotion. And you'll, you'll, you'll get where I'm going here in just a minute. You know, one of my heroes in life is Father Benedict Grishel. I've been reading his books for over two decades. Uh, I've heard him speak in person on several occasions, and I've heard countless recordings of his presentations and seen him on EWTN many, many times. You know, I even had the privilege of dining with him and his community over the course of a handful of nights, but that was a number of years back, like 20 years back or so, uh, when I visited the community as part of my discernment. You know, now, Father Benedict, of course, is a priest. He's a Franciscan, a Capuchin, uh, or the Capuchin Friars of the Renewal, uh, and he's also a psychologist. And what I love about, there's several things that I really love about Father Benedict, but one of them is that he is just so incredibly practical. He is so practical. When it comes even to the faith, to spirituality, to prayer, he's so practical. He is a deep man, or a, a man of deep faith, rather, and deep devotion. He's written two books specifically on devotion, and I recently began reading one of them. Uh, the two books are Praying to Our Lord Jesus Christ, Prayers and Meditations Through the Centuries, which he first wrote uh, after he had his accident. You know, he was hit by a car a few years ago. And it's interesting, when you read the introduction to that particular uh, book, you find out that he, he had been planning on writing this big, this big work, this big uh, book on devotion for a long time, and had been actually working on it for years, but he felt a certain sense of urgency after his accident to get something out there, because he, he felt like this whole question of devotion was so important that he had to ha- he had to say something, so he wrote uh, praying to our Lord Jesus Christ really as a prelude, if you will, uh, to his master work on devotion, which is the second book that he wrote, and it is out. It's been out now for I, I don't think it's been out for even a year yet. It's called I Am With You Always. So. Uh, I'm going to put links, by the way, to both of these books in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com, specifically for this post here, 114. This is episode 114. Uh, Anyway, you know, he comments in the most recent book, the big book, uh, I Am With You Always, which is like 800 pages. It's a huge book, you know. He, He comments that he considers writing that book to have been the most interesting and revealing intellectual adventure of his life. He also calls devotion a vital question for our times. And this really, this, this part of this introduction really impacted me when I read it. And I want to share that with you. So what I'm going to do is, if, if you will um, um, uh, appease me here, uh, humor, humor me, I will read to you just a part of the, the introduction, just a quote from the introduction about devotion. I thought this was really powerful, and it said a lot to me about the way that I should approach devotion in my own life. Now, this is from the introduction, and it's uh, under the subheading, Devotion, a Vital Question of Our Time. Often the leadership of Christian churches, including my own, appears not to give sufficient recognition to the importance of devotion to Jesus Christ. Strangely, some clergy seem troubled or annoyed by those who for, uh, by those for whom Christ is the most real person in their lives. Hostility to devotion takes many forms, including cold, mechanical clericalism, 
in an intellectualized form of belief that constantly attempts to express the faith in terms of acceptable in terms acceptable to the contemporary culture. Another source of opposition to devotion is a kind of religiosity that substitutes induced states of consciousness like recollection and alpha rhythms for mature prayer. New Age types of religiosity fall short because devotion is a a personal relationship. Recollection and meditation can be helpful, but they're no substitute for a real relationship with Christ. Strangely, there's no generally accepted definition of devotion. To some, the word signifies the most meaningful experience of daily life. To others, it suggests sentimentality and embarrassment. Some of the very people who feel that the colorful devotion of simple souls is distressing may themselves be very devout and experience Christ's presence profoundly. They just fail to recognize the same reality in others who express it differently. A very devout young priest told me that as a result of prejudice from his seminary training, he felt an automatic chill when he heard the word devotion. When looking for a descriptive definition of Christian devotion, I turned to the account of the first recorded prayer to the ascended Christ, the words of St. Stephen at his martyrdom. That's in Acts chapter 7. First, the martyr sees the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As he is being stoned to death, he prays two distinct prayers. One asks that the Lord Jesus receives his spirit and the other is a request that the Lord will forgive his enemies. These are clearly prayers to Jesus, the Lord. Later, we'll explore the full significance of this type of invocation, especially in the Pauline writings. Now, after an analysis of many devotional prayers and some personal introspection, I think that a good descriptive definition of of devotion to Christ will have the following elements. Number one, a powerful psychological awareness of the personal presence of Christ or a very strong desire for that presence. Number two, an immediate appeal to Christ about personally significant things in one's life. This makes devotion a real relationship and not simply a meditation. The personally significant thing may be an imperative need, you know, like, Lord, receive my spirit, or a strong desire, Lord, that I may see, or a fear, Lord, save me, lest I perish. It may be a spiritual need, increase my faith, or the need of someone dear to us, Lord, have pity on my son. It may be simply a desire to be silent in Christ's presence. Come aside and rest a while. We must relate to Christ not only with our minds, but with our hearts. Number three, we must be willing to do what he asks. This is interesting in Stephen's case, St. Stephen. Not long before, Christ had given the command, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To people of that time, such an injunction did not make sense. It had to be accepted on faith. With Stephen, we see a follower of Christ fully fulfilling this command for the first time in the most dramatic circumstances. Stephen does, not, uh, Stephen does what Jesus asks, although he may not really have understood why he had to love his enemies. 
I'm not sure that we understand it well even now. (laughs) Number four, Stephen did not fail, but we often do. Some of the Psalms, Psalm 51, for example, are beautiful prayers of repentance. And we see repentance in the New Testament, that of St. Peter, for instance, following the failure to be loyal to Christ. Repentance is always part of Christian devotion. Number five, devotion must include trust in Christ. Christ often rebukes the disciples for their little faith in the sense of trust in him. He also praised the faith of those who did trust in him. Faith in the gospel is always immediate, personal, and includes the idea of trust. Trusting himself to Christ in the hour of death, Stephen makes a clear statement of his belief in life after death. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Not only does Stephen trust, but he petitions, receive my spirit. In most cases, devotion includes a prayer for God's merciful providence to grant some favor or grace. The centurion asks uh, for healing of his boy or servant or son. Uh, He does so with a confidence that impresses even Jesus. Number six, finally, mature Christian devotion has a kind of simple eschatological element to it in which the devout person is thinking not necessarily of the end of the ages, but of his own mortality. The devout are sustained by the hope that at the time of death, they will see the face of Christ in a new way, that, that, he, that he awaits them. So to summarize this definition, we can define Christian devotion as a powerful awareness of or longing for Christ's presence accompanied by a trustful surrender to him of our personal needs. To this is joined a willingness to do his will and a sense of repentance for any failure to do so. We must trust him not only with our present need, but also with the salvation of our souls and those we care about. Finally, in some way, we must anticipate our meeting with him at the hour of death. He goes on to kind of tell what is going to be happening throughout the book, you know, as he's going through history and looking at devotion to Christ throughout history. And then finally, he starts to sum things up and he says, you know, um, talking about the presence of Christ, because it's all really focused on this real relationship and the real presence of Christ with us. And he says, you know, like this, this presence, it's real, you know. Uh, on a personal level, he says, those who try to follow him will go off the path. Some will give up altogether. But through it all, however, there will be a presence, one so subtle that a fool may ignore it his whole life while claiming to be Christian. This presence is so powerful that those who pursue and embrace it throughout life may, according to Christ's own promise, do greater works than he did. He quotes Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Our personal response to these words and to that presence is Christian devotion. It was there when the first Christian martyr surrendered his spirit to Christ. That presence And that devotion will also be there when the last Christian, at the point of death, prepares for the face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord. So it's a beautiful book. The introduction, you hear hear that? The introduction. The introduction I found to be beautiful. And so the, the book itself is just phenomenal. But I wanted to share this quote with you today, especially 
today because it really spoke to me about devotion. You know, I was in the seminary twice, and I, I do understand that sometimes, and I've noticed this, I've got friends, and I'm not saying that they're all like this, but I, I know a lot of theologians. I have a lot of friends who are theologians, and I have a lot of friends who are priests, and I do know, and I've, I've felt this myself, I do know for a fact that when you begin to exercise your brain a lot, your intellect, in learning theology, and studying theology, that there is a danger there that your faith itself can become intellectualized and that you lose something of the heart, you know, something from the heart, this, this real relationship, this devotion, this presence. And so I, I, I've, I wanted to share this with you today, especially today, because I've noticed really what I would call a waning in devotion when it comes to Divine Mercy Sunday. Now, this is just my experience. This is just what I have seen, and that's all I'm sharing. You may not have noticed this at all. It may be completely different where you are. But I can remember a number of years ago, you know, there were lots of special celebrations all over the Archdiocese of New Orleans for Divine Mercy Sunday. And it may have just been like one particular parish church in this one area that had a special thing going on that night or that afternoon to celebrate Divine Mercy. Um, you know, like it would be in addition to a usual Mass, uh, like the usual Mass schedule, they may have scheduled a special Mass that would be celebrated specifically for the purpose of honoring the Divine Mercy and that particular devotion of the Divine Mercy, and where before Mass, they may have been uh, the chaplet of Divine Mercy prayed. After Mass, usually it would end with exposition of the Blessed Sacrament in a lengthy period of, of, of adoration sometimes up to three hours. And you would have uh, maybe every half hour, every hour, you would have someone leave the, the, the chapel at a divine mercy. And priests were there during adoration. They were there available for confession, multiple priests. Sometimes priests would come from other parishes close by to assist with hearing confession. You know, the whole aim was to really help folks to benefit from the great opportunity to receive the plenary indulgence attached to the Feast of Divine Mercy. You know, I, re- I remember those special times, those special Masses, and, and the times of adoration, and it seems, in my recollection at least, that those churches, at least the times when I was there, were packed. There were tons of people there taking advantage of this. It was like a big deal. But what, I, what seems to me is that our enthusiasm over the last couple of years has seemed to have waned. You know, our parish did do something this year, does every year. Our parish does something every year for Divine Mercy. But what I've noticed the last couple of years is that uh, the attendance just doesn't seem to be what it used to be. Uh, you know, we had three hours of adoration. Uh, it ended with the, the, the usually scheduled Mass at 5 p.m. Uh, we had three hours of adoration, and priests were available for confession, but the church was really not packed. Uh, I was surprised at the small number of people that were there. Now, I admit, I'm saying small number, but when I say that, I mean somebody else might have been there and have been amazed at how many people were there tonight. I mean, nevertheless, in conversations I've had with folks who promote devotion to divine mercy, I've been told that some people shy away from it for the very fact that it is a devotion. They use that word devotion, right? And I really wish that they would read Father Benedict's book because we, human beings, you know, as we are, we need devotion. Of course, devotion is not at all, at all opposed to theology. It's not all, at all opposed to 
doctrine. We need that. Matter of fact, we have that uh, that ancient saying in the church, lex orandi, lex credendi, right? It's the, the, the law of prayer is the law of belief, that the way that we pray really does show us what and how we believe. So if we have a rich devotional life, that really does strengthen our faith, you know? So take this for what it's worth. It's just a thought on my behalf that I, I wanted to share with you today. As I mentioned, I will post a link to Father Benedict's books uh, in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com. I need two salmon, three salad compassion, and a free fillet. Barry, two others, seared salmon. Free fillet, working. I need plates. You know, the church calls special celebrations during the year feasts, and it does so for good reason. And uh, in our family, we take those celebrations, those feasts, quite seriously. And if you watched or listened to episode 113, then you got a sneak peek at our Easter crawfish extravaganza. As Easter approached, you know, I asked the kids what they wanted to do to celebrate Easter, and without a moment's hesitation, and in unison, they yelled, crawfish! (laughs) And they did so while jumping up and down and waving their arms. So I figured, you know, they're probably pretty serious, and there was no way I could make any other suggestions, uh, nor would I want to. Anyway, we had a great time. You know, Big D came over. Uh, Dwayne DeRoche, our good friend and, and, and the, the godfather of Christopher, Big D, he came over. We boiled a sack of crawfish and feasted big time. Now, here's the thing with crawfish. You know, we don't boil as often as we used to since uh, the prices are so high. They're just so expensive now. But the cost of boiling crawfish goes beyond the crawfish themselves. You know, there's also all the fixins, the seasoning, the lemon juice, the garlic, the potatoes, the corn, the mushrooms. Oh, and can't forget the propane. And uh, oh, can't forget the beer. (laughs) So whenever we boil, we like to stretch things out as much as possible, including, I mean, of course, you know, just kind of continuing to celebrate, especially Easter because it's the, the octave of Easter. You know, so we put a lid on the pot when we're done and then invited some other friends over the next day so that we could do a repeat. So we did two sacks over two days. And uh, after that, I think I had my fill, my fill of crawfish for, uh, for a while, at least for a week. <laughs> we had a good time. It was really a lot of fun. But think about it. You know, the church calls us to celebrate, doesn't she? I mean, we're talking about the resurrection, Jesus conquers death. This is the reason for our hope. It is good and right to celebrate it. And the church assigns eight full days for this celebration. It's known as the octave of Easter. And each of those days is just like Easter Sunday itself. So we celebrate it as much as we could. Uh, The concept of a prolonged celebration is not new. You know, we see it time and again in the Bible, but I will share with you one specific example, the wedding feast at Cana. You remember the story, right? I mean, there was a wedding feast at Cana in Galilee. Oh, wait, wait, let me read it. Uh, it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And uh, this, this is what it says. On the third day, there was a marriage in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus was also invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, six stone jars uh, were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's a beautiful story. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite stories, as a matter of fact, for, for many different reasons. And uh, I'd like to share with you just a few thoughts about this wedding feast. First of all, notice that John says this happened on the third day. You know, what does that mean? You know, well, it seems that Scripture scholars are not altogether sure, you know, but John could be referring to either the third day of the week or the third day of the celebration. And that's kind of my, my point here. You know, wedding feast in those days could last for days. As a matter of fact, four days, <laughs> like literally one, two, three, four, four days. You know, that's a lot of partying and, of course, a lot of wine. You know, and speaking of the wine, have you ever wondered why running out of wine was such a big deal? I mean, sure, you know, it could be embarrassing, right? Uh, there were no super Walmarts or Targets or liquor stores around. Uh, you know, like we have today. So, sure, running out of wine could really put a damper on the party, but is that enough reason for Mary to expect Jesus to perform an incredible miracle for this couple? I mean, to save them from some embarrassment? Is that is that it? Uh, I personally, I think it was a bit more than that. You know, back in that time, there was a concept in Jewish life, uh, a concept that we could call reciprocity. You know, life was difficult. Cana was a village, not a metropolis. There was no indication that it was a wealthy village either. And big parties like a wedding feast that lasted for days was a huge expense. So big of an expense, as a matter of fact, that no one really could take it on by themselves. Reciprocity simply means that one family could take on the expense of entertaining practically the whole village because they knew that every other family in the village would also invite them to a similar party. In other words, Frank and Sally could throw a party like that because they knew that Jack and Jill and Robert and Rita and Bill and Kate and Sean and Susie were going to invite them to, them to their parties. You know, this concept of reciprocity, reciprocity was built into their very way of life and laws. It was really part of your social responsibility. So to not be able to provide for your guests could have even had legal ramifications. And at that time, if you, if you think about this, at that time there was a deeper sense of community, of home, of belonging, of family responsibility. I mean, family was everything, right? Families were also bigger. It's not just 1.2 kids. 
The families were also extended. So it wasn't just mom and dad and children. It was extended family. You know, I mean, look at the story, too. You think about this and the number of people who would have been there. I mean, Jesus even brought his disciples. You know, perhaps the groom hadn't foreseen that. We don't know. But you can imagine the horror the the couple faced when they realized that they were running out of wine. In a very real way, they were about to lose their place in society. And this, at the very beginning of their new life together, not to mention how that would reflect on their families as well. So, you know, to our modern, modern eyes, this miracle of water into wine might seem kind of scandalous. But even understanding the concept of reciprocity, it can still seem quite scandalous, especially when you hear how much wine Jesus made. I mean, you know, the story refers to those six stone jars, right? I mean, if you were to take the wine that Jesus made and pour it into uh, 1.5 liter bottles. You know, those are the, the double bottles. If you, go, if you go to a store to buy a bottle of wine, you have a single bottle, which is a 750 milliliter, milliliter bottle, and then you have like a double bottle, which is two of those put together, right? It's 1.5 liters. So if you were to go, if you were to take all the wine that Jesus made and pour it into those 1.5 liter bottles, the double bottles of wine, you will end up with somewhere up to 473 double bottles of wine. Now, that's a lot of wine, all right? And it can go for a long, it can last a long time. Matter of fact, it could last even longer because the tradition at the time was for them to cut their wine with water. So it's, it's a, 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 uh, even three or four to one, okay? So they would cut it. So that wine would have lasted a long, long time. And look also the quality. The steward says, this is the best wine. I mean, it's just, there's so much that I could say about this story. You know, as a matter of fact, Char and I are going to be speaking at a gathering of married couples next week about this very story. And there are just so many gems here for us. You know, and I have to tell you, and I think I already said this, I love this story. You know, when John tells us at the very end, he tells us the whole point of the story. He says, you know, Jesus is the first of his signs. This is the first of his signs. And he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And I think that's the whole point of Easter too, the celebration of Easter, the the octave of Easter. It's that we may believe in him, that we may believe in his love for each one of us. Jesus is alive, and Jesus wants to bless us, me and you, today, just as much as he blessed that bride and groom in Cana. He wants to change the water of our tears into the wine of his joy. And I'm Ray. And, and this is, is Mary in the, the Kitchen with Sarah Reinhardt. <laughs> there is nothing like a big holiday and the promise of dinner preparations to make me run screaming from my kitchen. Seriously. I wonder at the irony of my reflections here as part of the Catholic foodie because my time in my kitchen is time I'd rather be, well, doing almost anything else. I don't mind doing dishes or folding laundry, mind you. Those things are far better than some of the other household chores that I avoid. But cooking? <laughs> Let's just say that I'm coming to terms with an appreciation for homemade versus processed food and the fact that this means I have to do some, um, 
cooking. But a big meal? Please, could someone toss me a line here? Oh, wait, I have a line. It's a line straight to heaven, actually, and it's my lifeline. It pulls me back to reality again and again. And as we hover on the edge of a holiday that's pretty major with all the food preparations to go with it, I am grabbing this line in a big way. You can grab on, too, if you need to, or, hey, even if you just want to. It's my rosary. Grab on and let's head into the Easter season filled with the joy of the risen Christ. Fantastic uh, reflection. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's Sarah Reinhardt over at snoringscholar.com. You will find her there, snoringscholar.com. Of course, you know, Sarah's like all over the online Catholic media uh, world. She's everywhere. But you will find her at snoringscholar.com. That's uh, that's where her blog is. And uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for that fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, reflection. And I know I am very, very thankful that you do step into your kitchen if for no other reason than to bring us Mary in the Kitchen every episode. So thank you so much for that. And I also want to say thank you to the band L'Angelus for the use of their Ave Maria and the Mary in the Kitchen segment. And you can find them at CajunRecords.com. Here's a way you can be creative on a daily basis. Well, how else in your life can you actually create new things every day? And you have to eat. This mm-hmm. is the thing we all agree on. If you're going to eat three times a day to the day that you die, why not be good at it? Well, there are three things I want to bring to your attention as we prepare to close out the show today. The first is that the uh, Daughters of St. Paul have a new album out. It's called There Can Be Miracles, and it is beautiful. You're listening to a clip of it right now. The award-winning Daughters of St. Paul Choir offers a brand-new album that contains inspirational, popular, and religious songs from yesterday and today. Find the sacred in the midst of everyday life through this selection of 11 uplifting songs. And the songs include uh, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone, You Are My King, I Am Your Angel, Let the fire, Light the Fire Within, P.A. Yezu, Prayer of St. Francis, Conte Partiro, uh, We Are the World, When You Believe, You Raise Me Up, You'll Be in My Heart. So fantastic, fantastic album. I highly recommend it. I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can find this album at any, of course, any of the Daughters of St. Paul, any of their stores. If, you have, if you're lucky enough, if you're blessed enough to have a Pauline bookstore close to you, it's a Pauline Books and Media uh, somewhere close to you, you can find it there for sure. Uh, it's also available online on their website at pauline.org. Uh, Pauline, you may you may pronounce that as Pauline, but uh, I believe it's pauline.org. And uh, here's a little bit about Pauline music, okay? Because it's it's a, a division of Pauline books and media. It's sold over one million CDs and cassettes since the choir began recording in 1988. And I'm very happy to say that I have uh, at least a handful of these uh, CDs. Awesome. Uh, the mission of the Paul of Pauline Music is to touch the hearts of listeners, inspiring them in them a thirst for the true, the good, and the beautiful. Through music's universal language, Pauline Music seeks to create a spiritual oasis of peace, hope, and joy 
wherein people can connect more profoundly with God who is love. Pauline Music is an initiative of the Daughters of St. Paul, an international congregation of women religious whose mission is evangelization using the means of social communication. They own and operate Pauline Books and Media, which includes 13 retail book centers in North America and a publishing house and distribution operation in Boston, Massachusetts. For more information on the Daughters of St. Paul and Pauline Music, visit pauline.org. That's www.pauline.org. So thank you very much uh, for them for producing this incredible music. What a tremendous blessing. This album, this new album, There Can Be Miracles, I love it. So I will put a link in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com. I also want to let you know about a uh, uh, special event coming up, especially if you are anywhere near Medway, Massachusetts. Uh, you know, Tony Melendez, if you know anything about Tony Melendez, ever heard that name before? He played for the Pope when the Pope came to the States. I can't remember how many years ago that was. It was a long time ago. Uh, he's a musician. Fantastic. Plays a guitar. Beautiful voice. Wonderful ministry. He is a, a sign and a symbol of hope to, to everyone everywhere. But the amazing thing about this musician is that he has no arms. He plays the guitar with his feet. So, I mean, Tony is known far and wide. Pope John Paul II, it was amazing when he played for him. The Pope left his chair, left the platform he was on, had to cross several barriers to get to Tony because he wanted to embrace Tony. You talk about beautiful to see the videos on YouTube, and I'm going to actually, you know, I've got a promo that was sent to me of this event that I'm telling you about right now. I'm going to put that in the show notes here for this episode. Uh, over at catholicfoodie.com. Uh, but but this is what's happening. Tony is going to be conducting a youth retreat at the Batania II Marion Center the weekend of June 24th to 26th. All right, unfortunately, I won't be there because I'm not, I've got other things going on. I, I can't be there. I wish I could be. I would love to be there. You know, Tony Melendez has a tremendous story of hope, and I heard him speak just a couple of years ago at the Abbey Youth Fest here right outside of Covington by the uh, you know, St. Joseph Abbey in Seminary College, and powerful. You talk about powerful, incredible stuff. Love it. So, you know, there, there's going to be a link in the show notes at catholicfoodie.com that'll take you to more information. Um, and if you're anywhere in the Massachusetts area, I would encourage you to, to attend. What a wonderful opportunity, a summer opportunity for spiritual growth for our youth. So here's a promo I'd like to pray. Uh, pray. I like to pray. I'm going to pray for you too, but here's a promo I'd like to play for you right now. The inspiring story and incredible music of Tony Melendez, a thalidomide victim who overcame incredible difficulties and gained international recognition, is a gift of hope to all who see and hear him. It was on September 15, 1987, that Tony Melendez won the hearts of a hundred million people. Everyone remembers the moment when this young man with no arms played the guitar with his feet and sang for the Pope. Deeply moved, John Paul II climbed across several imposing barricades to embrace and bless this courageous musician. Don't miss an incredible concert and awesome youth retreat with Tony Melendez, Friday through Sunday, June 24th through the 26th at Batania II Marion Center in Medway, Massachusetts. Full accommodations are available on the beautiful premises of this very special place. 
This is a rare opportunity to experience a three-day retreat with Tony Melendez. Is like no other day before You and I will never be the same Call Batania to Marion Center for details and reservations. Call now, 508-533-5377. That's 508-533-5377. Or visit us on the web at Batania2.com. Don't miss this tremendous, life-changing experience. is like no other day before, even more, you and I will never be the same. And if you want more information, but you couldn't write down that uh, that phone number, you can always go to catholicfoodie.com, and it will be in the show notes for episode 114. And finally, one last thing before we go, one last thing, please go check out the new and improved simplicitiesoflife.com. I've been working with Kessie and Kobe Thomas on their new website. Uh, the rosaries are all up, and we're now working on the jewelry. Again, you know, great religious jewelry and beautiful rosaries, all handmade by a beautiful family. Go visit my friends at simplicitiesoflife.com, and also let me know what you think about the new site. Uh, Greek Fest is right around the corner, and I think that uh, we'll be talking about it next episode. So thank you for joining me today at the Catholic Foodie, and I'm look, I look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, bon appétit.